si escuchan que hay gente... Welcome everyone, you're listening to Daniel here on The D Report. Today I get an opportunity to revisit a conversation that was initiated approximately four years ago. We'll share our perspectives on the state of politics, specifically as it relates to the COVID-19 response. I find that some of the previous conversations take on a different form as we consider the differences in our community's perspectives of safety, health, concern for themselves, their loved ones, and specifically as it relates to their place within the country. I've been fortunate to be able to speak with Dave Poyer before. He joins us again to add his direction on the state of politics. Before we begin, Dave, tell us a little bit about yourself. Dave Poyer, part-time political junkie, full-time thrill seeker. Okay, that works, that works. All right, Dave. Well, I was really just kind of thinking about like just catching up with you, man. Hopefully, just get get some insight from you on on what's been going on, you know, in politics. <laughs> you know, the first time we had this type of conversation, it was just about four years ago, and it feels like it's been twenty years ago because so much has changed and it's changed so quickly that. Uh, I mean, I just wouldn't even know where to start. You know, I've been trying to frame this and, and I, you know, I honestly, I'm not sure that the pundits have any better idea how things are going to go down than really anyone else, you know? Yeah. I mean, you, you asked me for the hard bet in the presidential election when we were 10 days out, when we talked, we talked twice in the fall of, 2016 if you remember once you know about this time i think it was actually in october and then the second time we talked it was uh just i mean within 10 days before the election and there were that was quite a 10 days it turned out as we saw uh you know of course the fbi uh said they were going to investigate um secretary of state clinton's emails and that was an interesting thing that i believe that had an effect uh trump uh trump did a little better than i think a lot of people believe we were on the debate and then also there were some like historic tactical misses by clinton you know she was like putting her resources into places where not only did she not win but she you know she get it gave away other states like we saw her losing michigan we saw her losing pennsylvania we saw her losing wisconsin uh, you know, these, I mean, Wisconsin and Michigan, these are places that have traditionally come out for, uh, you know, Democrats. Uh, and she didn't even bother to put a ground organization in some of those places, let alone visit them. And, and we saw that that actually came out to her utter detriment, you know. So those last 10 days before you and I, uh, you know, that we talked and then they had the election, I mean, it turned out to be very, very pivotal 10 days. I appreciate um, your so take I can on only it. imagine now. Now, yeah, so now here we are, uh, what, six weeks out, 42 days out from the election. And, uh, I mean, it's just like, <laughs> I mean, I dare not want to posit uh, what could possibly happen. I mean, even the, uh, Justice Ginsburg dying over the weekend, I mean, that's, uh, I mean, some people say that's not going to change the face of it. I, I do. I believe it is. I really do. I think that's going to change the face of not only the election, but the country for years. That's the context I was hoping we could really kind of share some thoughts in the way that you reference, like how we had this talk a couple of years ago. And at the very beginning, uh, I was really interested in the, in your take because you really were someone that spoke with a larger context on the realm of politics. So it wasn't just simply that you were able to say, I like this person and not that person. You were seeing the game of politics, if I can say it that way, and being able to identify some of the misses, some of the strengths, some of the question marks. Um, specifically, I think 
through this uh, much thorough, I guess, lens as someone that had been versed, you know, uh, in, in the political realm as a consultant. And when we talked about it the first time, it was it was a what if scenario. And then when we talked later, it was like, we can't believe this happened. And where we are now is this surreal moment for some of us, I think for everyone, like if, if you were pro Trump, I think you're still feeling surreal because you can't believe this happened. If you were against Trump, you're still confused and, and telling yourself what happened? How did we get here? But I feel that that's what's been happening for a lot of us on a weekly basis. And just to kind of give context to where, where why I reached out to you is that I felt that I've been wanting to talk to you about politics for a long time because every week I feel there's this huge thing that's happening and just this last weekend uh, an icon of the Supreme Court passes away uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and now come Monday the news is just like bursting with all these like new conversations and I would love to hear your take like how are you making sense of this I mean you know, the unpopular opinion that you hear on the far left that I've hear, heard see people like Aaron Maté voice, and, and I don't think they're without merit, is that uh, she, you know, and by that I mean the late Justice Bader Ginsburg, that she may have considered, knowing that she had the health challenges that we all now know that she had years ago, might have tried to exit when they still had the ability to get her placement through the Senate, you know, back during what would have been the first term of the Obama administration. And, you know, she, you know, well, nobody knows what the future is, but, you know, now we realize that uh, she may have had a very good inkling that she was sick during that time. And that, um, you know, looking down the loss of, you know, the Senate, you know, she it might have been a prudent move for her to uh, consider, of, you know, lining up an exit in such a way where her seat could have been covered for the sustainable future by a much younger justice. Now, going in the future, uh, it looks, I think, likely that the that President Trump, whether he is halfway through his administration. Or whether he is in the, you know, the swan song of his first and only term. Um, I do. I think that uh, either way, he's going to fill that seat. And I think it is going to change the way a lot of things are. And the first one I'd say is, I think that represents the death knell for the, uh, you know, the Americans, uh, you know, the ACA, the Obamacare, so many people called. As you can see, one of, you know, uh, in Trump's first year alone with two houses, he nearly dismantled the ACA and came within a vote of it. And it was, he's only saved by John McCain voting down the repeal and replace in, you know, the final weeks of 2017. So, I mean, here it was, even the Democrats were not a able to to turn the tide of, of ACA. And you know what? I, I really hate even being a, you know, a defender of the ACA because it's, I mean, it's helped a lot of people and it's helped a lot of people get coverage and, and you know, I mean, get on the health rolls that otherwise had no, no coverage, but it really is a boon to the insurers and it is, uh, you know, an inferior pro program compared to what we really need, which is something more forward looking like Medicare for all or a single payer system move. And, of course, we've been cheated from all that, I think, by, of course, the, you know, ca capture of the Senate and also the capture of of the House uh, in terms of insurers. The, they really do. And, and if, you ever, if you ever wonder, do they really hold this way? Uh, it was really uh, them that led a lot of the charges to help put Joe Biden in as the the nominee for the Democrats because that was their capstone issue that they wanted to see to it that anybody that got the nomination or even within spinning distance of the nomination would not be talking about 
Medicare for all, a single payer health system. They wanted to put a cap on that. And lots of money and lots of time was spent to uh, put a lid on Bernie Sanders yet once again. Dave, when we think about just okay, so I, I right now, I, you know, as I as I heard you speak, I was thinking about the way that you were framing um, just the the structure of government and the respective interests that are held, you know, in the Senate, in the presidency, in the House, um, in general, politicians as a, as a title that I think most of us are comfortable thinking about. But the difficulty lies in a very, I, I don't know if to say the word romantic is right, but people believe that, you know, government is supposed to take care of us, that, you know, that, that it's not about individual people, but the actual structure, the actual constitution, the, the legal parameters that are the safeguards. And with for example, the passing of RBG, uh, a lot of us, well, actually, in, in all sides of the spectrum of the political, you know, philosophies, they feel this is going to be impactful. You know, some of us are excited, you know, that we're going to get a much more cons cons uh, conservative court. Some of us are terrified that we're going to get a conservative court, but we both agree that RBG's position was key. And here it's one individual, you know, and not necessarily the court or the title. And then we also think about the presidency. And for years, it used to be, you know, the president doesn't really matter. The president really can't do that much. And bam, we get someone that is unlike other politicians and we see the effects. So my question or my conversation piece is this. If, if the government is that well organized or that well um, affected by big pharma lobbying that, you know, that our very candidates can be affected. You know, you mentioned, for example, the, the push for Joe Biden and the kind of minimizing of Bernie Sanders as something that is really tied to the way that there's billions of dollars in upholding the current medical structure, medical care structure, the private insurance system, and upholding that. Trillions of dollars. Trillions is the word, yes. And that lets us know, you know, that the, this rhetoric of like government and politics as, as public policy in representation for, for us, the common folk, isn't really how it works. So how do we talk about it? Well, what's interesting is that the conservatives are very good at framing these things in such a way that has ultimately uh, people forgetting what I think and that this, this is the ultimate expression of class warfare. And that really, if you want to go back to March, right, the CARES Act, COVID-19, beginning of the quarantine for most of the nation, I think that you've seen that it's been used as a pretext to create probably the most significant upward transfer of wealth in the history of humankind. And you've seen things get bailouts by them just, you know, you know, it used to be that if they bailed out the banks, like say Reagan did in the eighties, in the early eighties and early in his first term, when uh, you know there was an organized bailout of city, and then it, as you go further on, you look and see, you know, George Herbert Walker Bush, the first President Bush, he bailed out the savings and loans, which was a, a far more dubious thing because it had, you know, often depositors and investors that were of unknown origins, including foreigners and foreign governments trying to launder their money. Uh, and also organizations that uh, invested in extremely dubious things, you know. Uh, and then now fast forward to 2007, right, the failure of Bear Stearns. And again, you see the government effectively bail out 
all these different, um, you know, major, you know, Goldman and Morgan Stanley. And you see that upward transfer of wealth where they are able to have their failures and their, the risk that they take subsidized 100 cents on the dollar. Uh, because, you know, basically they had played fast and loose with what turned out to be a lot of, uh, like public entities, retirement systems like CalPERS and CalTERS. And I mean, we could just go on and on and on, but it would, you know, they didn't want to give a lot of these organizations haircuts on their portfolios because they had everybody's retirements tied up into them, you know. But did that stop us from demanding that nobody got, you know, bonuses or golden parachutes or buyouts or anything like that? No, it didn't. So again, you saw this massive upward transfer of wealth. Well, when people are so distracted by what we're seeing in the COVID-19, that people aren't really realizing that what's happened in the last seven months pales in comparison to both TARP 1 and 2 in 2008 and 2009, respectively. This is, this is on a scope far beyond that. You know, I've, I heard one per person describe it, and I, I think they might be onto something, is our Chernobyl moment. If you had seen that uh, HBO miniseries, Chernobyl, where the, you know, this, this reactor melts down the Ukraine, and they can't get anybody to tell them the truth about how severe it is, like how many REMs of radiation are involved and how widespread it is and what are the real prophylactic measures needed to stop it from spreading any further. It takes them a long time before they can get somebody to give them a meaningful answer, you know, because of the bureaucracy, because so many people's jobs are tied to the truth not getting out on their shift that, uh, you know, basically it's a lot of people speculate now that uh, that might have been the beginning of the end of the USSR as we know it. Because shortly after that came, of course, Glasnost and Perestroika, the demand for more openness. And uh, and then shortly thereafter, of course, you see by 1991, the Republic is officially over. And I'm not saying the United States is over, but what I am saying is that we I think we're on the precipice of a major sea change in the way America does business on a permanent basis. Because we've had our cake and eat it too as far as bailing people out and we're not really beholden to any other financial institutions, you know. When the British went bust in 1979, they had to get an IMF bailout. Well, the IMF isn't going to bail us out. The U.S. Federal Reserve, the Treasury and the Federal Open Market Committee that runs the, the reserve, they're the ones that are going to keep basically manufacturing money out of thin air to save us and to, to give some really dubious businesses bailouts like hedge funds. I mean, really hedge funds, Carnival, you know, Carnival Cruise got a bailout, the airlines, you know, they're banking a bailout and then they're still laying off all the people they're going to lay off beforehand. And I'm not telling you anything you don't know, Dan. I'm just saying that uh, at some point it will be unsustainable. And, you know, if you happen to be somebody that has is a, a holder of U.S. treasuries like Chinese or Russia or Germany, um, you know, that that's about the last straw, you know, to have America have its belligerent of foreign policy, uh, effectively borrowed money or invented money. You can see that, you know, just us being in the community of nations, <laughs> most people aren't going to want to support that that kind of behavior, you know. Dave, what's trippy about the way that you frame you know what's been happening and specifically i'm going to use your terms of like this this upward transfer of wealth that i don't think people are yeah i don't think people are that aware of how large it is and what the effect is going to be even while we know that it's happened so that we saw uh in the 2009 period, you know, the, the Wall Street bailouts that caused a response, you know, the, uh, the Occupy movement, um, the outrage from, from what you would call middle, even, even like middle America, like was upset. 
So we had the conversation of like, this is unfair. How dare they take care of these rich folk and me, I'm going to lose my house. But what we see is a, a, re, a reproduction, you know, of it, a, a return to that format. And one that you mentioned is actually even before 2009, you know, it's been happening, you know, uh, several times before. But one of the things that I think also helps us to think about um, how other people have talked about, I don't know if you read the book by Naomi Klein, I think it's called The Shock Doctrine. And I remember reading it a long oh, time yeah, ago. Yeah, I read it a long time ago. And if it, it fits here, it, it basically it has a very basic or not basic, it has a very straightforward position. And it says, in a moment of crisis is when governments, nations, capitalism will do its most devastating work. You know, and here we are under COVID. And I think you are, well, I see you pointing out this huge moment where as we uh -huh. are as a not just a country, but as a globe, you know, trying to deal with uh, COVID-19 impacting our health and also our respective countries and economies, countries are moving in, you know, um, so not just the United States, but like countries are, are, are changing their policies, are changing the way that their surveillance systems are, are more severe, um, civil yes. liberties are, are, are being cut, and it it fits into what others have identified, and I'm kind of giving credit to Naomi Klein, but I believe that, you know, this is something that has been articulated by others, which is like, this is how it goes down. In those moments of crisis is when government is going to take its opportunity. And I, I was watching the news the other day, and I, I heard, I believe it was Nancy Pelosi was talking about, you know, this new stimulus packet, and I heard her this make a huge plea for like, we need to bail out the airlines. And I was thinking like, wow, that's kind of crazy. Like, you know, this is from all parties, you know, so it's not just the Republicans, but the Democrats are also thinking, you know, they're also going ahead with this rhetoric of like, hey, think about these big corporations, these poor corporations, let's take care of them. You know, uh, this too big to fail rhetoric that we saw Obama uh, take forward. And I think that's what is heartbreaking because I don't know what's going to happen. Like, do you think that it, like COVID-19 is, is, is different than the past? Like right now, literally we're sheltered at home fearing that this thing is going to get us and hurt us. So we're not going into marches, even though we're seeing countless people take to the streets, you know, to push forward uh, accountability of police violence on black and brown communities. But maybe it's going to be different. Maybe it's not going to be like the way it was before under the Occupy movement, that it was, as you mentioned, a more class-based address. Oh, oh, we. I think the level of activism and the scope of people hitting the streets, I mean, we're talking that I think – uh, I heard that it's, at some point we had major uh, demonstrations uh, in 146 different cities across the United States. And if you look at, I mean, if you've gone to any or you, you look at even the footage, I think like my experience from having observed it is it's a wide scope of people. It's young people. It's people from, all, you know, as far as all these different identity groups, you know, if you will, LGBTQ and, you know, Black Lives Matter and, you know, Latinos. And then you also see uh, older people, you know, and I really, I do, I, I've seen just, uh, and that to me, that's something that's one of the few things I find very, very encouraging is that we have this confluence of, it's like, well, I'm home, you know what I mean? And I see this injustice out here. And and then here's something that's interesting. Now you're, you know, most places here, I mean, like where I'm from, I'm originally from New Mexico. Uh, they've been fighting people $100 if you are found walking around without a mask outside, you know? So they, you know, I think that is subsided as of September. But for a while, if you just think about it, so you know, it used to be going back to the Klan days, right? That we, you know, many, just about every state and every community had a law where if you were going to demonstrate, you had to remove your mask. Why? Because of the Klan. 
But now, all of a sudden, you have these direct orders that if you're going to be out in public, that you need to have a mask on. So now you have people have masks uh, and going to demonstrations, and it's it's just very interesting because uh, it's a unique confluence of social upheaval and economic turmoil, and uh, people having this unique balance of discretionary time to attend rallies in a way that they didn't when they had to work three jobs to keep keep afloat, you know. But one of the things that I just, I decry that we're going to see the loss of is, that, you know, part of that upward transfer of wealth that I don't think should be discounted <coughs> is that you're going to see just like, I think once the, I mean, I just, so I, you know, I'm living in this pocket that's kind of the opposite of the pocket I was living in when I was in downtown Los Angeles. When you and I first started talking four years ago, now I'm in this rural central Appalachian coal town. And, you know, the only thing that's near for hundreds of miles in every direction are similarly small Appalachian coal towns. And this is definitively Trump country. I mean, just even driving in the post office or even on errands, you'll see that people still have like, you know, Hillary for prison signs up in their, their businesses windows. And I mean, it's it's very much the opposite of Los Angeles as far as being where it is on this political spectrum here. This is definitively Trump country, you know. I mean, I live in a county where the Democrats, the Democrats themselves actually champion the, you know, this Second Amendment safe haven bill where they demanded that the Democratic governor resign for attempting to pass a, a bill that uh, would allow people that have had domestic violence convictions to not be able to own certain types of firearms and also people that have had mental illness to have their firearms confiscated, you know? And I mean, they had the, um, you know, the equivalent of the county commission sign it, the district attorney, the democratic sheriff, they're all Democrats, but they all signed this thing saying that they would not enforce these laws. So that's what the Democratic Party looks like in this little tiny area where I'm at. So you can only imagine how right uh, on the spectrum the right wing is, if that's what the Democrats are doing, you know. So as you know, I, I wanted to return back to the conversation you posed. or Yeah, the way that you framed it earlier was talking about just how even the Democratic Party um, is a reflection of special interests to the point that the present candidate, Joe Biden, expresses things that um, really are aligned with what I would even argue is a Republican ideal, you know, this idea of kind of upholding uh, private insurance companies and not really supporting a single-payer uh, medical system. I feel that there's a disconnection between the politicians and the voters. So that when you mention that you are in a rural town that is pro-Trump, and these rural, rural these rural towns express a legacy of employment tied to coal, and the coal industry doesn't really have a future. You know, it's not like we're no. thinking that's our that's where we're going to bank. You know, a hundred years from now, so it's unfortunate. It's devastating, but there is a way of thinking about supporting people and saying like. You're, you're going to be taken care of. We will make sure that there's a place for you in the future. And even though we can argue that Trump may be saying that, I don't even know if he is saying that, but it doesn't seem that Trump is the person to bank when he has overtly demonstrated disdain, disrespect, non-support for working class folk. Rural America is not who he represents. He is this like someone who has fantasies of being the elite. And yes, any wealth that he may have is is not at all a wealth that we could we would say is representative of the one percent. Yeah, but yet he that's who he thinks he is or that's who he personifies. So I'm stuck in this frustration of going that I see that in the Trump 
presidency and campaign. But even among the Democratic Party, I feel there's a huge disconnection with a candidate that is not hearing the masses saying, we want single payer. We want something that is different than what we are experiencing now where I can't make my insurance premiums because my job is not giving me enough, you know, and that's what I was, I was trying to connect the, what I heard you speak. Well, what's interesting is, um, so one of the things that I've run into and try to support local progressive candidates while I've been out here is that they get no help from the national party. Um, I won't say who, but I've talked to a, you know, a Democrat who was trying to get the DCCC. I'm not sure if you know what that is, but that's the Democrat, Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. They're basically the ones that are the, you know, they're the broker of the corporate funds that the Democrats take on in order to to win House seats for, you know, promising looking freshman congressmen that they're trying to trying to get elected, you know. And one of the things that they do is they have, and you probably, if you've heard this, this was very prominently covered in 2018, but they'll say, hand me your cell phone. Now, just in the contacts you have in your cell phone, I want you to see your way through raising $2 million just from the people in your phone. And if you can't do that, then the DCCC doesn't want you. And you've actually seen them like torpedo a, a fair amount of progressive candidates. Um, just based on uh, their inability to raise money, you know. <laughs> and you've even seen what they did to uh, AOC. You know, they completely did everything they could at every level from trying to stop getting her on the ballot to trying to get her uh, petition signatures invalidated. I mean, they did everything. They ran Democrats against her. I mean, there's even word that the you know some of the local democratic wards were trying to encourage republicans to run against her it's almost like they'd want a republican in there then they want a bona fide social democrat in there so yeah the so we're we're definitely seeing uh you know kind of laid bare this you know democratic propensity in in the 21st century to be a, a champion for corporate interests in a way that uh, is kind of unprecedented in so many ways, you know. And of course, a lot of that was laid by the Clinton presidency's new Democratic movement, where they were going to just basically go along with whatever Wall Street wanted, or you know what I mean. Big corporations wanted to, in order to keep that big corporate money rolling into the Democratic side, you know. Dave, I was hoping we could talk a little bit, switch gears a little, not to, not to many, it's not really that switching gears, but I'm, here's what I'm thinking. Sure. When I keep track of the global political spectrum, we are seeing, at least, at least I, I think I am seeing, a rise in conservative parties. Uh, presidencies that are pretty much following a similar template, you know, whether it is the, you know, like Brazil, uh, thinking oh, yeah. about that, um, you know, like this corporate, but they're not, they're not using the word corporate, they're using nationalism, like this very nationalist slash racist attack on Native communities, attack on the poor, um, protecting the interest of the 1% but also not being very, well, well, also being very careful to not say exactly what's happening. So they don't say, I'm here to represent the corporations. They're saying, I'm, I'm here to protect the interests of the country. Is it possible or is there a way of thinking about like a global movement or is this coincidence? I'm, I'm just thinking like, how do you connect corporate as trans, yeah, corporate interest as transnational interest and their respective, like, representation in, in countries or in the politics of, of nationalism. Oh, you nailed it. A transnational corporate interest is really synonymous with uh, being part of the elite class in this day and age. 
you know, they, or if you want to put on your Marxist cap, the controller of, uh, you know, the means of production or whatever. It is. It's corporations. And, and you've seen it from local cities to countries to even, you know, legislative frameworks like the European Parliament. They have installed people that are amenable to their interests. Um, and I, you know, it's very interesting. I've seen it at every level. I mean, everywhere that I go, you see these people that are kind of, uh, of a limited, if, you know, you know, questionably limited abilities is, you know, middle of the ranks people that kind of get unexpectedly called up and, and invented, so to speak, to hold, hold high office. So you see that. Over and over and over again. I'll give you an example. Um, we're getting in my home state. We had this uh, governor for two years, you know, and she was she was a Koch brothers product, but her name was Governor Susanna Martinez. But they really had taken somebody that was not ready for prime time, and they sit him down and they say, "Listen, how about we throw you the round of money here, and you just stick with our talking points?" and and then they, you know, give they push that person through. Right, they throw all the money and they get all the proper TV ad buy, uh, and then these people, uh, you know, do this technocratic heavy lifting for them, and they get all the construction trades. Like where I'm from, originally in New Mexico, the construction trades they really hold a lot of of sway. You know, just like the all the developers in, in LA do, they hold all that sway and they want to be able to control the local laws and curry favor with the local law making and permit granting bodies. And and you can see that there is a, a concerted effort to take them over at local and national levels, you know? So what do they do? They found basically a rural district attorney, Susanna Martinez, and, you know, she made a good sound bite and she's relatively unknown, but she had very low negatives and they, you know, they effectively installed her, you know, and she did everything from, you know, opening up the, you know, oil drilling to, uh, to its maximum level to letting whatever construction trades have whatever jobs they wanted to have. I mean, it was a free flow defense, law enforcement. I mean, they all. All those very powerful lobbies just had their way insurance, you know, but they just basically took somebody and installed them that wasn't, you know, really maybe didn't have the moral compass or maybe they had a moral compass on the, you know, she had a lot of things like legal reform that you might, that someone who's a rank and file district attorney might have, you know what I mean? Like she wanted to reinstate the death penalty, for example, you know, but that pounds, <clears throat> you know, in comparison to you know, people that are, you know, couldn't even get coverage on Medicaid in, in her state, you know, during that time. And you see that at national levels at places. Uh, like, a, you know, perfect example is just like you said, Brazil, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, Venezuela. I mean, they, they got that Juan Guaido in there. And he's, I mean, he's basically, you know, uh, an American trained physician. You know, who's got, who speaks English and, you know what I mean? They feel like they could kind of set their watch by him. He's not going to create too much of trouble. He's not going to get his own conscience and do his own thing. You know what I mean? He just wants to be in power and that's about all he knows. And they've got scores of those guys. You know what I mean? Look at what they did with Evo Morales and, uh, you know, and Uruguay. I mean, they just place and place over again. You just see these. You know, Guatemala, uh, you know, you just see so many of these places where, you know, I'd, I'd even say like um, Calderon, who's one of those people in Mexico. But you do, you see these like technocrats that just know they want to be president or they want to be governor or they want to be mayor. And they don't want to make too many trouble or too much trouble for anybody. They just want to get along and go along and have the title and have their face up on the wall or their name up in lights or whatever and you know what I mean they really are don't mind being the sheriff for corporate interests what's trippy about this assessment is that at least for me is that I grew up hearing that so it was never new like I don't remember 
a time when I didn't hear that politicians were put in place to uh, kind of do the favors of other people, uh, that politicians were put in place to get as much resources as they could out of the common goods, you know, um, to misuse the position. And when I reference that, I, I'm, I'm being very specific that like, I remember it being a home-based talk. So this is what my uncles and my aunts and my mom would talk about because that's how we talked in, in the house. You know, we were very skeptical of politicians. But here's what's, what's trippy. We always spoke about it as things that were witnessed in other countries because, you know, we were, we were in L.A., but we were too far away from the politics of L.A. so that we didn't know how the local mayor was tied to a certain bank in Los Angeles. But as I got older, I started noticing that certain gang injunctions were being put in place to move us out uh, as a connection between uh, the local university, the local land developers, the local banks. In reality, it was, it was a key set of individuals, no more than 20 in particular, um, that were all tied. And then I realized, oh, this is not just some faraway conversation of how like Latin America has a history of corruption or how Russia has a history of corruption, but like the United States has a history of corruption. And when we talk oh, yeah. about this, it really is scary for some of us. It's heartbreaking for some of us. It's like traumatizing. And that's where I feel your conversation or your your pointing of, of the effects of what we're seeing as being Chernobyl-like, that like we are seeing something, not to sound too alarmist, but we are in the midst of big changes. And for some of us, it's inspiring because we are the change makers. We see ourselves like out in the street. We're going to create a better society. And, and, and I'm like excited by that. But for some of us, we are fearing. We are like scared because we do not know where the future will take us. We do not know what kind of America we will be living in, our children will be living in. But well, I, here's, here's how I like to think of it. Uh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, well, I like to think of it this way. Like, I feel like you've been a, a politically aware person, right? You, you grew up in a place where uh, you guys didn't have a lot of that mythology. Like, you knew why that, that guy was on the dole. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's on the take. He's just there for payments or whatever, you know? Like, you didn't have any... Uh, and when you start seeing it in one place, it makes it, I think, fairly easy to pick it out in other settings, including the settings that you thought were immune to that kind of behavior, you know. But here's what I think. One of the things that I'm encouraged about is that um, now we're, I think people are starting to understand, oh, you know what I mean? I think this may be one of the class, the closest things that people have to class awareness that we're going to have in a lifetime. Because I think people are realizing I'm poor. Uh, I, I maybe had a shot. Maybe I had a nice job. And now that's over with, you know. I mean, you see a lot of people that are just, like, they don't even know. Like, because I see so many people, you know, I, I work in the unemployment insurance branch. And I won't say what state. But I, um, you know, I'm completely shocked to see how many people are just dangling by threads because they've been out of work for six months now, you know, and it's, they've become homeless. They've lost a car. They've had to move home. And I'm not just talking about someone who's 18 or 19. I'm talking about people in their forties having to go home and live with the retired folks. And it's interesting because, you know, this supposedly there's so many people that are in their prime that can't work or they can't go to school. Or, you know, there's so many things that are being cut loose that these little tiny measures of upward ascendancy that we had have kind of been like term temporarily turned off, you know. And, you know, in the name of COVID, in the name of, of whatever it is, quarantine or whatever. And I think it's accented that people could see, oh, I really am a surf, you know. I really am 
uh, a wage slave. I really am beholden and will live and die with these student loans or with this mortgage that, you know what I mean? I bought at the, you know what I mean? I have paid for an overvalued house. Uh, you know what I mean? I, I just, you do, you see that. And it's so weird because our economy is, you know, one of the things that Richard Wolf, I don't know if you, you know him, but he's, he's got a great podcast. But one of the things that he said that stuck with me is he says, everywhere I go, I see empty houses. But then also everywhere I go, I see more and more homeless people. He says, what kind of economy do we have where you would have so much need uh, and yet so much supply all unmet on, in the same economy? And I think that's a pretty salient question. Is is you know what I mean? I mean we have. I mean you're living in in that greater Los Angeles area, man. Everywhere you go, there's homeless people, and it's getting worse, and they're in a bad way. And then you look at all these like vacant homes that you have. You know what I mean? Like I just everywhere I go, whether it be in rural, whether it be in downtown Los Angeles, I see places for sale that are just sitting there vacant for months on end. You know, so I'm always amazed. It is true. We have an economy that is not really doing what economies were designed to do, you know, and that's meeting the needs of the population. So, Dave, I think that's a place that um, I, I, I invest a lot of time in looking at economic theory or economic formulas, but with a slight uh, distance from, I guess, classical economic departments. More, my background is in anthropology, so... I, mm -hmm. When I think about economies or economic analysis in anthropology, we pretty much just look at economies as the rules of the respected community in how resources are extracted, modified, distributed, and consumed. And, and I do itemize the rules, right? So then for us as a market-based economy, capitalism um, it's full of inconsistencies so that it's not necessarily always there to meet the needs of the community. I mean, the, the market system, capitalism, the issue that we regulate resources, we control resources, not always in the way that would be as logical so that, as you mentioned, we have places where we throw away food in the dumpster while there are hungry people yeah. in the front. That doesn't right. make sense from an anthropological observation as a visitor. You're like, man, this is a wacky society. But it makes perfect yeah, sense. Yeah, not rotten, disgusting food. Beautiful food. Yes. I mean, like, beautiful food. Like, I, yeah, yeah, it's like, uh, I mean, like, I, <laughs> this little store, I live across the street. I buy up all the tropical food they have because it's on clearance. And that makes me sad because I think, man, these kiwis and pineapples are going to get thrown out if I don't buy it because no one around here eats mangoes and kiwis and pineapples. And, and you know what I mean? I just think I can't save in all the grocery stores. There's probably tons, literally tons worth of them thrown away every month from and some of the grocery you know, stations like up and down the street because, you know what I mean? Because people don't eat that type of fruit out here, yet it's available. It's just so strange that you would have a system with Sarah, so much abundance goes to such waste, you know? And you know how that fruit is. That fruit is water intensive. That, you know what I mean? And you and I have had to talk about water and how my theory is that water will, is, will become the next, you know, red alert thing that we'll be fighting and killing each other over in very short order. That's actually, I think, uh, a very key point in terms of the resources but to even think about the conversation of like the awkwardness of these contradictions, I want to really signal that it's not necessarily illogical. We may, we may feel that it doesn't make sense, but it makes perfect sense if the reason we do not have a way of meeting the needs of everyone is because by design, it's not supposed to be like that. So in order for us to have this idea of power and those of us that call ourselves the one percenters, those one percenters will not become the one percenters or cannot maintain their sense as the one percenters simply by just holding money. Uh, money is it's in itself symbolic. Money is 
a set of transactions that have a history of relationships so that like for us that know that it took us a hundred hours to make, you know, $2,000, you know that that's what it means. But for someone else that can put together $2,000 in one hour, those relationships are key so that if we were just to be able to print $2,000, I am now unsettling the arrangements of making sure that I work 100 hours while someone else only works one hour. And as you mentioned earlier, that a lot of us are becoming very skeptical, very transparent and saying, am I still reproducing a pattern of 500 years ago where there was one person that really controlled the land and I was just lucky enough to live on their land and at any point they could kick me out? And, and a lot of us are saying, I think we are. We are still in that format because that format literally is an extension so that we think of capitalism and the rise of nations as natural, but they're not natural. They're very much orchestrated and designed. And I think that's where I struggle because I see this model um, full of inconsistencies and surprisingly uh, short-sighted by those in power. Because as you mentioned, you know, um, as we see this upward mobility or upward transfer of wealth, if wealth just means money, um, it's going to collapse because you cannot have billions of dollars if we all die. Like, yeah, you can have billions of dollars, but you're not a rich person if there's no one there to exercise your wealth onto. You know, and that's where I'm, that's where I'm living in that analysis of the inconsistency and the short-sightedness. And maybe also, I'm also motivated by knowing that there's got to be a way of checking you know, creating a balance of opportunity to bring that down, you know, just, just by their own self-interest, not, not even by this commitment to social justice or social good, just their, I want to believe that they see the short-sightedness themselves. Well, one of the things that I love, like one of the, so we're talking about this CARE Act and how the first part of it was really by, on the signature of an executive order. They just created all this money out of thin air and they, and it was immediately went to these companies. You know, it is a nice way of saying that the, you know, the treasury has become a, you know, de facto investor in all these companies that received funds, you know, just on, on a signature, you know. But the, the thing that I really am kind of amused about is that uh, the CARES Act also gave people these federal, what they call the FPUC, which is the Federal Pandemic Un Unemployment Assistance uh, Compensation, right? Which is, uh, it's basically $552 per week. So let's say you lose your job and you're, you're laid off. Uh, because of the COVID-19 quarantine, right? Your business closes down or whatever, and you were to get this, you would get your unemployment, and then you would get uh, you would get this pandemic unemployment compensation, this additional $552 a week. So if you're one of the lucky few people to get that, uh, you know what I mean? Like you could actually go out and make an unemployment insurance claim and get that. Well, guess what? That was designed like that particular like structure. Everybody's like, how are you giving people $600 a week? Well, what they were, what they had figured out is if you work 40 hours a week uh, based on a $15 minimum wage, that would be how you get it. So, so one of the, what I'm saying though, is that, oh, I feel like hopefully a lot of people are understanding that the wages uh, should be, the wage structure is overdue to move its way up. And, you know, I remember back in Seattle when uh, Councilwoman Shama Sawant, the socialist council member in Seattle, was pushing for a $15 minimum wage. And that was considered nutso. Everybody's like, well, I make $15 and I'm a... You know, I'm some sort of skilled laborer that went to school for what I do. So you're telling me a guy that flips burgers should make 15 an hour and I should also make 15 an hour? And I always laughed and wanted to tell those kind of folks, 
No, you missed the point. It's not that you're going to make 15 an hour. It's that a, a guy that is a buffet, like a banquet server, and he makes 15 an hour or someone that, uh, you know, is a custodial service makes 15 an hour or cleans hotel rooms makes 15 an hour, then that means that you should make more, that you are overdue to make more as well, that maybe you should be making $42 an hour or something like that, you know? And so what I what I'm encouraged about is I really do now you saw what seven states and now I think we're up to 15 states that have a $15 minimum wage or at least major metropolitan areas that have just broken loose of the federal minimum wage and and placed and put in place their own minimum wage to to get to $15. I mean you you start to see that and I really like. Uh, so I'm I'm almost kind of wondering if people now that they've gotten a taste of what it is to actually have a livable minimum wage, by virtue of this pandemic unemployment, you see what I'm saying? Like they can actually say, well, hey, if that's what it is to have enough money to pay your bills, then that's what we should be getting from working 40 hours a week. It's just absolutely insane that you could work 40 or 45 hours a week and not have enough money to pay your bills in this country. But that's what it's come to. You know, if you're still somewhere in the hinterland where they still pay seven twenty-five an hour, the federal minimum wage, right? You don't work in a, one of these major metropolitan areas, or you have a job that's excluded from that, or a city that's somehow excluded from that, and you're still working with seven an hour. Uh, I mean, there's no way you can, <laughs> you know what I mean? Keep your the lights on in your apartment and pay your rent and have food and pay your cell phone bill and pay your gas and electric and your car insurance and Lord help you have uh, some people in your household and your life to take care of on seven twenty-five an hour. It's just not doable, you know. And it shouldn't have, it shouldn't be that we expect anybody to do that. So that's all I'm saying is that maybe you know what I mean. That we've seen this. The Democrats, I think, may have pulled a fast one, at least in the House, and, and getting these these puck payments right to people for during unemployment. You know what I mean? I really do. I feel like that was almost like a hidden experiment in universal basic income, you know. And so that's one thing that I just think, well, maybe if people have a taste of what it's like to have a fair minimum wage coming in without killing themselves for it, that they can dig their heels in when it's time to go back to work and, you know, demand a better wage, maybe even organize for better wage. That's one of the things that I hope for that's come out of this. Here's this third thing that I really think might actually be a plus of all this COVID and all this upheaval is that we may have done the closest thing ever to giving the environment a rest. You know, I don't know about you, but I live in a rural area and I have seen the wildlife come back strong in these areas, you know, and I'm encouraged by that. You know, I've seen deforested areas grow back over. It's almost like Mother Earth has been given a small respite to try to repair the horrible damage that we've done to her. And, uh, you know, the skies have been become clear and unfortunately it will probably subside, but, you know, I mean, I just wonder if somehow people realize, oh, well, it's not lost. We shouldn't just shrug our shoulders and go, oh, well, we, we go live on Mars or something, which is completely ridiculous. You're not going to go live on Mars. There's no air on Mars, you know? There's not, you know what I mean? This idea you're going to go find some other place to live. No, no. We've got to take care of this place because this is the only place where any of us are going to live or die. And, and clean air matters. Clean water matters. I mean, we spend so much time on tanks and bombs and airplanes in this country that we fail to see that the real national security threat to people is unstable weather environments and acts of God such as floods. The forest fires, you know, some of these things aren't even acts of God. Some of these are definitely human created, you know, but they're national security risks that displace populations of tens of thousands of people, if not hundreds of thousands of people, more than any war that America's fought in the last 30 years, to be sure. David, I want to thank you for sharing your conversation with me today. See you. Bye, David. Bye. You've just finished hearing a conversation with self-described part-time political junkie, full-time thrill-seeker, Dave Poyer. I've known Dave for several years, and one of the things that stands out is his political insight. Dave's background within the political sector is quite varied and substantive. And as I reflect on today's conversation, one of the 
pressing elements that stand out the most for me is the way that we see politics through different filters, particularly in the way that we experience government on the different sectors, the class-based divide, the cultural context, so that for some of us, we are seeing great rewards during this COVID-19 period in terms of government subsidies, government support of our industry. And some of us are seeing almost a complete absence of support where we feel that the policies of the government are not seeing the struggles that we're experiencing or are simply ignoring them. But more to the point, they've signals that if we were to take inventory of, of what is happening in the state of politics at the national level and state level, we will see that there's an alternative movement so that we've been seeing our governors respond to the COVID-19 threat by asking their respective residents to shelter in place or slowing down the economy. And that debate has pressed many of us to look at our own pockets, seeing ourselves more vulnerable. But at the very same time that we are feeling more vulnerable and limited in terms of accessing wealth, we are seeing a tremendous movement of wealth going to very specific corporate interests. And the question posed by Dave is, is this our Chernobyl moment? And I think what he means by that is that we're seeing a lot of things change, but we will not know the effects of those changes till much later. I hope you found this conversation of interest and value and take it to your respective circles to continue. You've been listening to Daniel here on The Deer Report. Please feel free to send me your thoughts, questions, any feedback you may have to the following email, comments at dereport.org. You can also check out our archive page at dereport.org to check out past segments. Thank you for listening in. Stay safe. Stay strong. Join us again next week.